right. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We're continuing in our series on the book of Acts. If you are coming in and you are chilly, it's because I just turned the heat up. It was apparently set to 55. The Marriott wants us to stay awake. So it's one way they help us out, I guess. Um, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We're going to be reading verses 21 to 41. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired word for us today. Let's hear his word. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew... For about two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who was there does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the great sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who were neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us accounts of your activity in history. Thank you, Lord, for, for showing us what it looked like to live for you for the early church. Thank you, God, for, for giving us this demonstration, not just as a history lesson, but, Lord, for our good, so that we, too, might be inspired to live for you, 
God, I pray that we would see life in your word. God, I pray that we would be inspired to live for you and Lord and see that living for you makes a difference, Lord, no matter what disturbances are caused, that we can trust in your kingdom. God, I pray that you would give us faith and hope in you. Lord, I pray that you would be with not only me as I speak this morning, but everyone here who is hearing your word. Would you open up our ears and our eyes to see you, to hear from you? Lord, would you uh, illuminate our minds to be able to understand your word? We pray in your name. Amen. Well, have you ever known somebody with dementia or Alzheimer's? Anybody in the room ever known somebody with dementia or Alzheimer's? Quite a few. I know that growing up, um, my grandmother, watching her on my dad's side decline with Alzheimer's, and when a loved one goes to the different stages of either dementia or Alzheimer's, it, it, it's, it's hard to watch at times. They go through different stages of forgetting things and eventually forgetting who they are, and it's kind of sad to see. Remember my grandmother, little by little, she forgot who everybody else was and then who she was. And, and she forgot why she was in a nursing home. Because she would, she would go off in these ways that was uncontrollable. And she needed help that my granddad, who was in his late 80s, could not provide. And we tried to remind my grandmother about as much as we could about who she was and why she was there and what she was alive for. But eventually she stopped remembering. I remember when I was a young boy and I... I saw her for the last time. I walked into her room at the nursing home and she thought I was my dad who was in his 40s by then. And I was probably 10 or 11 and, and she thought I was my dad. So she says, hey, Tommy. And I just kind of played along with it, smiled at her and, and the whole family was there and they had these little, little water dispensers out in the hallway with those little cone-shaped cups. And so I grabbed one of those, put it in my head and I was playing and, 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 and pretending to be a clown. She laughed and, and it brought her a lot of happiness Remembering who she thought I was, was her son. We all got to see her, we got to say goodbye, but soon she forgot who she was herself. She stopped remembering, she passed away. And As Christians sometimes, I think we can have a version of kind of Christian dementia, or Christian Alzheimer's. And, and it's no less sad. It's no less debilitating to your Christian walk. It's no less harmful to the Christian walk than... Physical dementia or Alzheimer's, when you forget who you are in Christ, when you forget why you're here, when you forget what you're living for, when you forget who you're living for, when you forget what your purpose is, when you forget who Jesus is. And I don't mean that you don't know those things, but when you practically live as if you can't remember that you're new in Christ. I think sometimes we forget that, that who we belong to, that who we are, who, who we are living for, what we're living for. But God, he, he seeks to graciously remind us. And, you know, you, you got to wonder, why does God give us so much history in the book of Acts? Well, he gives us these history, not just to look back and say, oh, isn't that neat? Isn't that a great story? And, and, and then we walk away and we forget who we are. No, stories like that in the Bible, stories like we have in the Bible here, are actually meant to be illustrations of things. And God gives us gracious reminders through Scripture about showing us how saints of old lived in the past and to spur us on to live that way in the future, to live that way now. And so God seeks to remind us gently and lovingly who we are, what it looks like to live for Him and His kingdom that will never end. 
you know, even though our minds might one day fail. And the main idea that, that we're going to explore from this passage is that when we truly live for Jesus, when we truly live for Jesus, when we know what we're living for, when we know who we're living for, when we live for Jesus, the world is disturbed. When we live for Jesus, the world's disturbed. But God's kingdom, but God's kingdom remains unshakable. When we live for Jesus, the world's disturbed, but God's kingdom remains unshakable. Why do we need to be reminded of these things? We need to be reminded about who we are and what it truly means to live for Him because we have a tendency to forget, to have a form of dementia, if you will. We need to be reminded that when we live for Jesus, it will disturb the world. It's supposed to. But we tend to forget that, don't we? And we tend to be surprised when people around us are disturbed by how we live. We need to be reminded that no matter what, with God's kingdom, the kingdom we're living for now, it remains unshaken. I love that we sang that song earlier. Matt didn't know what I was preaching on today or what one of the main ideas was, but I love that Holy Spirit was leading him that way and, and just singing about kingdom unshakable. If we forget that we live for an unshakable kingdom, then we're going to live like God is shaken and we're going to live in fear and worry. So let's hear gracious reminders from this morning from God's Word. In the passage that we read this morning, um, it's important that we not separate it out. Um, although we take chunks at a time to preach through Scripture on Sunday mornings, um, they're never divorced from what goes before it. And, and especially with this passage, Luke here, he begins with a statement. He says, look down your Bible, it says, now after these events. Now you have to ask the question, what events? What events is he talking about? Now, what does that mean? Now, in light of these events, what, what events is he talking in light of? And if you look back up, he's talking about these prior events that he's just written about have direct bearing on these verses. The Apostle Paul, he is still, in case you're wondering, you haven't been with us for a couple weeks, he is still in Ephesus, the third largest city of the Roman Empire at the time. Paul's time in Ephesus is met with great success up until now. God's been mightily working through the good news of Jesus Christ to establish this, his kingdom. And prior to these verses, to give you some context, in the latter part of chapter 18, the first 20 verses of chapter 19, Luke's given us four different snapshots of different kinds of people. Now, that's in addition to Paul, because Luke's kind of following Paul all along. But he gives us four different snapshots in addition to Paul. And all of these snapshots, they show us whether we're living for Jesus or not, and that it can be seen. That's what's informing these verses. That's what's underlying these verses. And that's what the world all around Paul and his companions are reacting to. And that's what we see in our passage today is the world is reacting to the fact that living for Jesus can be seen. And that's the first major idea that we're going to look at is that living for Jesus can be seen. My neighbor just down the street from me, he, he plants a garden every year. And and this year, I'm, I'm guessing he's getting ready because he's already tilled the ground up. I went out this morning, left the house, and drove by his yard and saw that the whole yard is already tilled up. He's, he's preparing the ground. And, and I assume it's a garden. And, and how I know it's a garden, how I will know it's a garden, is because after he plants seeds, like he did last year and the year before that, somewhere around middle of March or end of March, you'll start to see the whole field will be greening up and sprouting and growing. And, you know, I, I know he plants something because, and that life exists in the soil because it can be seen, the change, the growth, the fruit, the fruit of the new life that he puts in the soil. It's unmistakable. Back in, in, in 
Verse 24 of chapter 18, we saw Apollos. He was a great orator. He was a, he's well educated. He was a good speaker, but he did not yet know Jesus. But yet when he encountered who Jesus really was through Priscilla and Aquila, he was changed and he became a great help and he was boldly refuting the Jews and he was proving who Jesus was from the scriptures. There was a transformative effect in his life. The next encounter, the next next picture we see is that Paul's encountering the disciples of John. They had not yet been born again or heard that Jesus was the Messiah. And when Paul says, this Messiah you're looking for, it's it's not John, it's Jesus. And they were immediately converted. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. And it could be seen, the effects of their transformation, of the transformative new life that they experienced in Jesus, it was immediately instantly seen and then we saw paul who god was using to bring about unusual miracles that people touched handkerchiefs and aprons to him they carried them to the sick and demon possessed people that were healed and then we saw that the life of christ was seen in and through paul as he trusted in god we saw another snapshot after that of the seven sons of sceva who they were trying to use Jesus for their own purposes. And it was clear that they were not really living for Jesus. They were living for themselves and they were exposed, both figuratively and literally. And God used their example to show that Jesus is indeed powerful and that true life in him has an effect. And the whole city saw that and they were in awe that Jesus really is powerful. And then lastly, look down your Bibles in Acts 19, verses 18 to 20, if you will. Just look down your Bibles for a moment. We see the effects of many who had believed. And it says that most of those who had believed, they were coming forward. They were confessing. They were divulging their practices. And they were giving up their source of livelihood. For those in, the, in, in magic or the, the dark arts, they were, they were giving up their books. And, it, and in today's sums, it, it totaled over $6 million. And one day they made this big bonfire. They were radically transformed. And it could be seen. I remember when I was still young and I had a newfound passion for Jesus and I wanted to get rid of everything that I, that I had that didn't honor him. And a few times that spilled over, maybe a little bit unwisely, I don't know, and included my friend's records that I thought were ungodly. Maybe a few of the, the original Beatles albums, and uh, maybe a few. And then we burned them together. It, it was a zeal for the things of God. Maybe a little bit misplaced, but it was a zeal for the things of God to say, I want to I wanna part with the, the, the way I used to live and what I used to be about, and I want to part with anything that doesn't honor and glorify God, and I want to magnify it because I, I want it to be seen, because not because I, I wanted to impress people, but because I just wanted to live for Him. Maybe I need to recapture some of that same zeal for Jesus, just seasoned with wisdom and, and grace, perhaps. But Well, needless to say that when the gospel of Jesus is faithfully preached, people's eyes were opened. And that's what Luke has been showing us. Their, their lives were changed. They produced good and very compelling fruit. And Paul is reflecting on those things in the state of the Ephesian church. And the church is growing and doing well and is having great influence. And as people are being made new in Jesus, their practices, their lives are changed. And it can be seen. And then Luke quotes Paul saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. 
You can kind of hear the foreshadowing in Paul's statement. He does not know what he is saying at the time and that he's going to go to Rome as a captive one day. But Luke, as he's writing that and recording that, I can't imagine that Luke's just remembering, my goodness, Paul said more than he knew. And how God was orchestrating events. And, and then in verse 22, we see Paul's modeling ministry through multiplication. And the effects of new life in Christ are seen as he sends out Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia, likely to the areas of Berea or Thessalonica and Philippi to go and care for the churches. The gospel, the whole picture here that Luke is painting is that the gospel has taken hold, the kingdom of God, it's growing, it's being established, and the strongholds of darkness are falling in Ephesus. And it's neat to read some of the letters that Paul wrote while he was here in Ephesus. And one of those is, is most likely the second letter to the Corinthians. And in verse 10, uh, in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And that is what was happening all over Asia, that, that area that today we know as, as Turkey and Greece, that was, that was happening all over Asia. It was happening all over the area around Ephesus. The power of God was tearing down strongholds. God was establishing his kingdom and his new life could be seen. And Luke tells us that after all of this, after the dramatic change in these lives, after people gave up over $6 million of, of books and publicly repented, there, it says, he said that there arose no little disturbance. I love that Luke is a master of understatement. He says, and now after all of these events, there arose no little disturbance. What he's saying is this is a really big disturbance that happened here. Demetrius, he was a silversmith. He had a business in making and selling silver shrines of Artemis. And Ephesus, as we learned last week, it was the chief place of worship for this uh, supposed goddess Artemis. She was seen as the goddess of the hunt of wild animals and of childbirth and fertility. And this myth of this goddess was widely worshipped all across Greece and Rome. And in Rome, she was just called by another name, Diana. She was worshipped for all of those things and also as a protector of young girls who relieved diseases in women and, and brought fertility. And all across the world, she was the most worshipped goddess of that day. And, and Ephesus was the chief place of worship. It's where everybody would come to pay homage to her. In the temple of Ephesus, it was considered by many to be perhaps the greatest of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was, it was listed amongst the seven wonders, but um, most who saw that, and even one historian, he compared it to, to the, the temples of the pyramids of Egypt and said it was far greater than that. There was over 127 of these massive columns made in marble that supported this grand roof. All the, all the columns were over 60 feet tall. It was a magnificent magnificent altar really to the goddess Artemis and it dwarfed the Parthenon in Greece by far it was over 400 and some feet long 225 feet wide visitors from around the world around the Roman Empire they came to pay homage to Artemis and when they would come they would come and they would buy these little shrines these little silver uh, replicas of the goddess and they would take them home and they would put them in their own homes and they would erect little shrines, little cults around them so they could worship Artemis at home. 
And this was big business. And Demetrius' livelihood and the wealth depended on this trade of idols. Not only, not only that, but lots of craftsmen in the city made a whole lot of money from the worship of Artemis. And I imagine there were all kinds of tokens, all kinds of tokens with Artemis on them and the ancient equivalent of t-shirt vendors setting up everywhere, selling things with Artemis' image on them. But as the kingdom of God was established in Ephesus, something began to happen. The new life in Christ, it could be seen. People turned away from false gods to the one true and living God. And everywhere, people stopped buying these silver idols of Artemis. Now that's interesting because Paul never actually mentioned, hey, Christians, you shouldn't be buying those those idols. No, he just he he presented the one true and living God and said these these aren't really gods these things made with hands. And so Demetrius he's upset he gathers all his fellow craftsmen together along with all kinds of other workmen and trades that were related to idol factory of some kind and he gathers them together likely on this this path of commerce that was outside of the city and that led to the theater. And notice where he starts in his speech. He begins by appealing to the thing that many people care about the most. He, he, he talks about their money, their source of income. And he says, men, look down your Bibles, he says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And then he moves on to stir them up that their business and wealth is being threatened by Paul and by the Christians. And he says in verse 26, if we look in your Bible, it says, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but take note of this, it says, but in almost all of Asia, What's he saying? He's saying this can be seen, not only here, but in almost all of Asia. He says, this Paul has persuaded and turned away great many people, saying that gods made with hand are not hands are not gods. Paul wasn't speaking against, but he was speaking the truth. He's saying, you know, why are you trusting these things that won't, won't satisfy you? They're not gods. You see, what was happening? The kingdom of God was tearing down strongholds all over all over Ephesus in what was called Asia then. And people were turning away from false gods. And it was affecting what people spent their money on and how they lived. Obviously, Demetrius' business had dropped off in the past couple of years. All of a sudden, you know, Paul comes to town and then his business starts to drop off. He'd been probably doing a really good sales. And, and all of a sudden, after a couple of years, he starts, wait, wait a minute, why am I losing money here? Why... Why am I selling less? Nothing's changed, right? Maybe he starts investigating, asking his previous customers, why are, you, why are you not buying my shrines anymore? You know, maybe the owner of a local big business in Ephesus had always bought silver idols for their star employees, you know? You know, for the 10-year gift, the 20-year gift, whatever the equivalent was back in that day. Maybe, maybe he stopped buying idols now because he worshiped the true living God and he wants to give out books or other gifts to employees now. Maybe, maybe the moms and dads who would have otherwise, you know, brought idols when their kids graduated from elementary school or the equivalent back then in high school or whatever, and they would give them a little token or a shrine. And maybe moms and dads who used to do that have now been transformed by the new life of Christ. The, the kingdom of God has been established in their lives, and they've stopped buying idols. And, and maybe people in other parts of the province in Asia were 
converted. Maybe they visited town. They saw that their friends and their relatives were changed. They saw the difference that, that Jesus made in their lives. And they were, that, they were living differently. Maybe they saw that marriages had been restored and they weren't partying anymore. They were loving their children. They are demonstrating the fruits of God's Spirit and the visiting people. Maybe they, maybe they noticed and asked about it and became transformed themselves and stopped living for idols. These people whose lives have been changed were telling people what was different in their lives. Large groups of people were turning away from false gods that can't satisfy to the living God who gives the water of life. It was a compelling picture seeing new life in Christ lived out. And somehow Demetrius heard about these things and he knew that Paul had something to do with it and he heard that Paul had said that gods made with hands are not gods, and that's not very far from what we know that Paul said. That's not far-fetched. After all, Paul wrote to the Corinthians most likely just before this when he was ministering in Ephesus and in 1 Corinthians 8, 4. He wrote, We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. You see, an idol's not anything. There's no real existence. There's only one God. So he doesn't hammer Artemis. He's not hammering against those things. But he said, we know that, you know what, all these idols around, there's no real existence to them. But there is one God, a true and living God. And so we see in verse 27 that Demetrius is worried that his trade would go away if more people started turning to Jesus because the effect of people repenting, as even Demetrius could see this, the effect of people turning to this new faith was that they started turning away from living for idols and they started talking about God, started talking about Jesus. And today, it might look like different things for different people to, to turn away from idolatry, to turn away from living for idols, and to turn to the living God. After all, idolatry is not just one thing. It could be anything that we look to or hope for hope or satisfaction or for peace or for safety or security or comfort or assurance other than God. But if we trust in the good news that Jesus came to give us complete and total peace with God once and for all, like we we keep saying about this morning, but by being our permanent mediator, then what's the result? We're going to turn away from those things we seek peace in, aren't we? If we trust in the good news that Jesus is our all of our hope and satisfaction in this life, then what are we going to do? We're going to turn away from things, lesser things that we seek to find satisfaction in. We're going to turn to him and be satisfied. If we trust in Jesus for the complete forgiveness of our sins, we're going to begin to turn away from trying to be righteous on our own, maybe earn merit before God or other people. You're on this hamster wheel of trying to constantly earn merit from your performance. But if you really understand who you are in Christ and what you're living for, you're going to get off of that hamster wheel and say, thank God that Jesus, you earned all the merit that, that I'll ever need. And God, you see me with perfect merit. You know, if you trust that all of your sins have been forgiven and that now you have the righteousness of Christ, you're going to stop trying to be righteous on your own? Now, I don't mean you're not going to live righteously. Now, that's, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit, by the way. It's one of the desires that God puts in you, like the desire that I had when I was a kid, is that I, I just wanted to live for Him. That's what we see here. People just wanted to live for God. And they're turning away from these things because they've seen something far better. The question for you and for me is, do, do, we, do we see what is far better? 
Do we see who we're living for? Do we see who we are in Christ? Do we see the far better? And is that compelling us to turn away for that life to be seen in us? You know, some here will turn away from obsessive behaviors, maybe trying to constantly wash their hands to clean themselves or their environment out of anxiety over sin and feelings of dirtiness. If you understand we've been given Jesus' worth, we're going to turn from trying to earn worth ourselves and make ourselves feel better about areas where we're lacking or weak. Whether we seek worth from other people, our spouses, our friends, our co-workers, our parents, our fellow church members. It's going to have an effect that's going to be seen. If we really understand the, the good news that, that Jesus feels and knows our sorrows and our deepest pain, and he empathizes with us, empathizes with us, but he's also able to give us joy. If we truly see that and know that, it's going to liberate us. It's going to liberate people who cut themselves just to feel or to let the pain out. Or maybe because they feel like they deserve punishment. Whatever the reason, trusting in Jesus that he was wounded for us, it brings freedom so that people don't have to turn to self-wounding anymore. See, the effects of the gospel of living for him, of knowing who you are in him, they, they'll be seen. If you know you've been adopted into God's family and that God only wants to do us good at his heart and his soul, it, in all of his heart and soul, he, he wants what is best for us that makes a difference in how we approach things and our confidence. If we know that God is for us and we live that way, that's going to be seen. Isn't it? If people see that, that Jesus has carried our pain so we don't have to anymore, it's going to result in, in, in turning from masking pain with maybe alcohol or drugs or distracting ourselves with endless entertainment to kind of fill this void that we know is there that only Jesus can fill, that he has filled. You know, we can turn the mindless entertainment distractions to ignore that we feel like something's missing and we feel inadequate and we don't want to admit it. And, and the, the good news of Jesus Christ says that, no, you can't admit it and say wholeheartedly, I am inadequate and that's good because he is more than adequate. I don't have to hide from that. I don't have to you know, put, suppress those feelings to, to make myself feel better. I don't have to be distracting myself all the time. If we can turn to see that God sees us with the complete adequacy of Jesus and, and it can help us want to know him and plumb the depths of his majesty and beauty. You see, the good news about Jesus, it's, it's functional. It's meant to be seen. And it will be seen if we're trusting in and putting our hope in this good news, it has an effect. And if people begin to believe and trust in the good news about Jesus, their lives will be radically changed and the world around will see. If we live trusting in the good news about Jesus, like these people in Ephesus and all of Asia were doing, it, it will turn us away from living for idols. You, you wonder how to defeat those idols in your life? One of the best ways is to turn to see Jesus. The one true and living God, because these idols, they're nothing. These idols that we make with our imagination, with our own hands, these idols of our own making, they're nothing. But Jesus is everything. In, in the world around, we'll see and take notice, and it'll cause no little disturbance, as Luke says, like it did in Ephesus. 
share a quote with you really quickly. I don't have it for you up on your screen, but uh, a quote from Alistair Begg, and I'll put it in the notes for you so you don't have to, so you can pay attention to it later. God says that his word and his weapons have divine power for tearing down strongholds. I wonder if we believe that, by the way. When God's people do not believe that, he says, they will go for other mechanisms with which to tear down strongholds. And in the process of doing so may appear to be momentarily effective. But in the long run, only the power of the risen Jesus can change your heart and change your home, can change your business, change a street, change a university, change a culture, change a nation. If Christ does not return in the next hundred years, our children's children will live to bemoan the fact that our generation enjoyed such freedom, such opportunity for proclaiming the gospel in overt, imaginative, gracious, and persuasive ways, took the easy way out with 1-800 numbers and placards in the corner of the street. And he goes on from there. But if, like Jesus, we will point people to the hope that we have, to give a reason for the hope that lies within us, then they're going to see that light. And some will turn. Now, not all will. And we see in this account that it caused a great disturbance. And that's the second thing we're going to look at, is that living for Jesus, it will disturb the world. Living for Jesus, it disturbs the world. It's it's like, I was thinking about disturbances and, and one of the disturbances in a good way <clears throat> in our household is Gideon. He's, he's my little toddler and he lives life loud. I don't know where he gets it. Probably from his mom maybe. But um, when, when Gideon, when he gets up from the nap and the house is otherwise quiet and he runs into the room, you know it. When he enters into the room, I mean, no one is unaware of his presence. He runs in the room, hey, and he's always yelling. I'm like, and you, you think it's, you're wondering from the other room, is he mad? Is he upset? Is something wrong? No, he's just yelling. He yells about everything, everything. He's happy, he yells. He just, he's always loud and, and he disturbs the peace, but he brings joy and he brings it loudly. And you can't help but, but notice him because that's really who he is. He, you can't help but notice Gideon and his personality and he's living life large. Now, that's not what we're talking about. It's not all Christians being like, blah, yelling all the time. But Christians then were living in such a way that people noticed that it caused a disturbance. I so badly wanted to use some some Star Wars illustration, but I'm not going to do that. Talk about disturbances, the force. No, I'm not going to do that. But um, these Christians in Ephesus, they were living for Jesus, and it disturbed people who were not living for Jesus. Some were disturbed and responded and turned their lives to Christ. Others were disturbed and didn't know what to do about it. And they wanted to protect their idols because they were being threatened. Their way of life was being threatened. And so Demetrius, he was stirring up the crowd that not only might they lose some money, their whole business might go away if everyone turned away from worshiping the great Artinus. Maybe Ephesus' tourist trade would die. So the people, it tells us, were enraged They were full of rage because that's what people do, right? When they're afraid of things and they're worried about something bad happening to them, they get mad. That's normal. Sometimes when you're afraid of something bad happening to you, you want to protect against that. I think some of us are tempted to get mad, right? Whether the cause is unjust or just. We saw people enraged recently, all in in different ways in the last year or so. We've seen people enraged about 
Ferguson, just like we saw people enraged about um, the so-called 1% a few years ago. And they staged a huge Occupy Wall Street events in New York and around the country. Some people riot when their sports team or loses or a concert is canceled at the last minute. Some people riot when their sports team wins. I don't get that one, but I don't actually don't get any of those. But, but you know, there's this rage in the human hearts when we don't get what we want. When something threatens our idols, it enrages. And so you see there's riots. And we can see that today. This is not like something we can't relate to. Something, oh, this was like 2,000 years ago. People then were so uneducated and dumb. They were, they were so unenlightened. They got enraged over things that we would never get enraged of. Really, turn your TV on. There's people getting enraged over the same kinds of things, real or perceived. And so in Ephesus, they were enraged because they were seeing that these Christians, they were turning away from idolatry and it was going to cost them something and they were threatening their way of life. They didn't like it. And so look down at verse 28. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were filled with this blind rage and their war chant became great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Luke tells us the result of this, look down in verse 29, it says the whole city was filled with confusion. And that's often how the world responds. They're disturbed and confused. It's confusing. A city of well over a quarter of a million people, the third largest city in Rome at the time, it is stirred up. This whole city is stirred up. And it says a great crowd, they rushed together into the theater. I can, I can just picture this, this scene in my mind of Demetrius and all these craftsmen and tradesmen stirring people up and people stirring their friends up and stirring their friends up until such a huge crowd is gathered. And it says they rush into the theater to deliver their own kind of mob justice. Often the theaters where they would try massive public criminals. The theater they were headed to was the great theater of Ephesus. It was... It held over 25,000 people. That might not seem very large to you, but in that day, that was quite a feat. You know, to put in comparison to, to our terms, the, what well, used to be called the Bilo Center, I think it's called the Bon Secours Wellness Arena. That, that place downtown, it only holds 15,000 people. I can't imagine that place full of people who hated me and wanted to kill me. I can't imagine that. And yet this was 10,000 more than that, almost double. It was 25,000 probably plus people. They were, they were packing into here and they were yelling. It must have been intimidating for Paul's companions who'd been dragged along. They're, they're ripping them down the street. They're dragging Gaius and Aristarchus and, and they look up from this theater and they see all these seats around them full. Angry people who want to make them pay. And tells us that Paul, no doubt, he wants to go in. He probably wanted to stand with them to make a, a verbal defense. He was probably knowing Paul wanting to shift the blame away from them, to take the blame himself and say, look, it's not them, it's me. If you want to do anything to, to anybody, do something to me. And Luke tells us in verse 30 and 31, he says the disciples wouldn't let him, even when the rulers of the province of Asia, that's who Asiarchs were, they were, they were provincial rulers. They were some of Paul's friends. They sent messages to him and said, don't come in here. They continually, they were urging him saying, no, don't come into the theater because they probably fear what the crowds might do to him. Talk about opposition. Talk about a disturbance. Talk about being willing to stand up in the midst of people who don't like you. Talk about being unafraid. 
to live for Jesus boldly? Then Luke, he gives us almost this, this almost comical commentary. And um, this, it's funny, these verses, actually, when we were at the pastor's college, Aaron and I, like 16 years ago together, when we were there, we adopted these two verses, this verse completely out of context as our theme verse. And it was completely out of context, by the way. He says, now Luke tells us, now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. They weren't even sure why they were there. I can relate. There was mass outrage. There was confusion. They were angry. They wanted to make somebody pay. They weren't, they weren't organized. They were just acting in a raw emotion. Isn't that normally what happens when you have a riot? People aren't organized and saying, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. You know, I remember when they interviewed some of the people who were, who were protesting Occupy Wall Street. They said, why are you here? And they said, we're protesting 1%. They said, who's the 1%? And they said, and they kind of blanked out and they couldn't explain who this 1% was and what this 1% had done to them. And, and, and they had no, they had no understanding, but they were just mad because of their life. They weren't getting what they wanted in their lives. So they're angry. It says, some were yelling one thing, some were yelling another. Most of them didn't know what the purpose of their gathering was. They were all pretty upset. In verse 33, Luke writes, he says, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. You know, most likely the Jews were wanting to separate themselves from or distance themselves from the Christians. They were like, hey, this isn't us, by the way. You're confusing us with Christians. A lot of us happen to be Jews, but that's not us. And so the Jews had put forward Alexander. Probably explain that, hey, we're not with Paul to try to distance themselves. And so you have this picture of Alexander. He gets put forward in the in this theater and he's probably looking up and he stands up and he, he motions them with his hands. And I can just imagine as, as things just start to get quiet, maybe somebody recognized him and they yell out, don't listen to him, he's a Jew, just like those other ones. And then all of a sudden the whole crowd erupts. And Alexander, poor Alexander, he never gets to speak. And they, they, look in verse 34, it says they chanted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. It's a long time to chant something. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That was their way of saying, heck no, we won't go. You know, they were, they were there for hours chanting to shout them down. They didn't want to hear it. But then Luke tells us something else. He shows us how all these events over everything Behind the scenes is a mighty God who's even using government officials to bring about his purposes. And he shows us that ultimately that living for Jesus, it's, it's living for the unshakable. Living for Jesus, it's living for the unshakable. He writes that the town clerk, he comes in and he quiets the crowd. You know, this is not like town clerks we have. You know, nobody knows who the town clerk is here, right? I have no clue who the clerk is in Greenville. But in that position, he would have been the highest ranking civic official. He would have served as the liaison between the city of Ephesus and the Roman government. He also would have been in charge of the temple funds and income for the city. He would have been highly aware of the impact of this new religion on the temple and the city. And yet God uses this very powerful civic official to bring a voice of reason, just like God has used various governments throughout history to protect and preserve his people to bring about his unshakable kingdom. And then this, this town clerk, he gives a wise, calming speech. It's both true and political in nature. 
And he, and he says, men of Ephesus, who is there who doesn't know the city of Ephesians, the temple keeper, the great Artemis? What is he saying? He's saying, look, everybody, everybody knows our city is the guardian of this great temple of Artemis, and her image was given to us from Zeus himself. That's what it means. This, this image fell from the sky. In the original language, it actually fell from Zeus. And, and he says, nobody denies this. And since, in our view, Artemis is really a goddess, then we don't have anything to worry about from these mere men. That's kind of what he's saying here. And so he, he says, you know, before you go... Go acting like the sky is falling is, don't forget, nothing's going to change these things. Then he says something remarkable. Look at verse 37. It's remarkable, really, given his position, given what he knows, given, given the Christians are, are living out in the open boldly. He says in verse 37, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious. He's talking about against their religion. Neither sacrilegious, and, and the word there actually is, you know, they're not stealing from the temple. That's what that word literally means. He says, nor are they blasphemers of our goddess. You think, hang on, wait a minute. They're not trying to keep people from the temple, and they're not saying anything bad about Artemis. And that word would have gotten back to the city clerk because he was in charge of the whole city in a liaison from, to Rome. He would have been aware of the goings-on in the city, and he says something. He says, they weren't trying to, to do harm to our temple business, to our, our false gods. And they weren't speaking out against Artemis. Now, in our culture, in our day, that's kind of shocking, isn't it? You're like, hang on! This is the place where they worshipped Artemis the most. This was the center of worship in all of Asia, really. But he says that neither Paul or his companions are known as sacrilegious nor blasphemers against their goddess artemis you see they don't have they don't have that kind of reputation they weren't known to speak out directly against the goddess in the temple cult that's striking because the gospel is in opposition to those things right but what he's saying is that that all everyone knows and now by the way this crowd would have differed with him if they knew differently they, they didn't seem to be kind of a pacifist kind of group you know you put out some people shouting i heard him say that artemis should never be followed, that nobody should go to the temple, and I saw those Christians out front picketing. No. They didn't assault the temple, they didn't harass people going in. And, and you know what, that's, that's, that's kind of surprising, because think about Christians today. Often Christians are known more for what they're against specifically than for the gospel. But Paul and his companions, they weren't like that. And that's actually one of the ways that that God preserved and established his kingdom. We don't, we don't need to be constantly protesting against the false gods of this world. What we need to do is point people to the true and living God. And they're going to turn away from all those things that don't satisfy. We can say, these things don't satisfy. Let me, let me, let me show you Jesus who really satisfies. And so that's what Paul and his companions were doing for two years. They were known more for the good news about Jesus and pointing people to worship the true God than they were for being against the temple. You know, if the Christians were picketing the temple and picketing the sellers of idols directly and saying, boycott these idol sellers, everybody would know it, right? The city clerk would know it. The guy who's in charge of all the income for the temple, he would know that. But they weren't. And it's not because those things weren't wrong. Those things were wrong, but they were known primarily 
for preaching the truth about Jesus and God unabashedly, unashamedly, and for living for him. And it was seen and it was disturbing and it was making a difference. And the kingdom of God was being established and strongholds were falling. You see, what does God call us to major on? He tells, calls us to major on the good news about Jesus, to major on the truth. And the truth is what sets us free, not speaking, saying, now, we do have to identify what's not true. We don't need to be bashful about those things. But oftentimes, I think we get carried away being more about being in opposition to the culture than we are saying, let's go and rescue the culture, redeem them with the truth of God's word. And so Paul and his companions, they were preaching the good news. People were repenting, turning from their sins, living sacrificial lives for Jesus. And it was having this, this massive effect. They weren't living for any temporary shakable causes. They weren't living for shakable governments of this world. They weren't living for the shakable careers or their shakable families. They were living for God's eternal kingdom that can't be shaken no matter what happens in the world. And Paul modeled this way of living for them. Think about how Paul spoke. He went from synagogue to synagogue, persuading. He went from place to place, place persuading. He went to Athens a couple years previous, persuading them. Paul was positively persuasive. And so he models living for God's kingdom and engaging the community at large. And he, he does, does this through persuasive speech and persuasive living and not against through, through speaking against things or imposing things on them, but through persuading people of the truth. And you think about the model the Apostle Paul has provided for us all throughout Acts up to this point. It's that he engages people where they are in their homes, in the streets, in the marketplace, in the city forums. Wherever he goes, he seeks people out. He engages with people for the kingdom and he seeks to persuade them of the truth of Jesus. And I wonder if we started living like that, living like these followers of Paul and really of Jesus... We're living. I wonder if we started living in a persuasive way like that, engaging people about Jesus lovingly and winsomely wherever we went. I wonder what the effect would be. I think we have an answer here in Scripture, actually. It's, it's that the kingdom of God will be established. The world's going to be disturbed, but God's kingdom is not going to be shaken. I wonder if we Christians stop being primarily known for what we protest against. And we were primarily known for pointing people to know the living God and the hope that's found in Jesus. I wonder what that effect would be. I wonder if I and all of us started pointing people to the the hope that we have in God, unashamedly, unabashedly, living for him what the effect would be. Well, going back to our story, in this case, God uses this unnamed clerk to be a voice of reason to preserve and to sustain his kingdom. Paul's and his opinions, they were above reproach. They weren't ungodly troublemakers. They spoke the truth boldly, unashamedly, but 
And he tells them, if you have any charges, bring them to the courts. Hey, the courts are open here, okay? Ephesus was the seat of government for the whole province of Asia. And he says, hey, the courts are open. The proconsuls are here. The representatives from Rome, they're here. They're waiting. There's due process. Don't take the law in your own hands. And then in verse 40, he gives them warning. And he says, kind of ironically, he says, you know what? Not only are they not breaking the law here, you're in danger of breaking the law right now. He says, you all can be charged with rioting. That wasn't a small charge for those under Roman authority. You see, the Romans really prized peace. They severely punished civil unrest and rebellion. Implications would have been that Rome could step in. They could limit Ephesus from being a free city to being ruled by Rome directly. So based on his words and the stark reality of things, they all kind of quiet down. He dismisses the assembly and verse 24, 41 tells us they go away. That's pretty remarkable given how worked up they are, isn't it? <laughs> Think of how worked up they are. This is a crowd yelling for two hours. Great as our team is the Ephesians. I mean, that is nonsensical. They are enraged. And yet, God uses this town clerk to calm them down. In the end, God preserved and he protects his people and his kingdom might continue to expand. You know, when we, when we live for Jesus, the world's going to be disturbed. But God's kingdom will remain unshakable. It's got some implications for us, doesn't it? Maybe some of us here have a little bit of dementia. Now, I'm not talking about getting old, the kind that, you know, when you walk into a room, you forget why you're there. All of us have that to some degree, okay? But I'm talking about this kind of Christian dementia where we forget who we really are in Him. Maybe some of us have forgotten who we are and what we're living for and why we're here. And this reminds us that we're not living for a temporary kingdom. We're living for an eternal kingdom unshakable kingdom reminds us that what jesus what living for jesus looks like it looks like turning away from our idols and turning to him turning away from the lesser things that do not satisfy that are no gods at all and turning to the one true and living god the same one who lovingly went to the woman at the well who was trapped in idolatry really She was trapped in fornication. She was living with this fifth person who wasn't her husband. And he he says, I I know, but woman, I'll give you water that that will truly satisfy you. If I give you a drink, you'll never thirst again. He reminds us of the transforming power of the good news and it helps encourage us that we can trust in this transformative power of Jesus to have an effect in our lives, to tear down strongholds, maybe in our own lives, to tear down the strongholds in around us or those places that you think are unshakable. God's kingdom is alone unshakable. And the good news is, is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. He reminds us to not be surprised when people are disturbed by our living winsomely and lovingly and wholeheartedly for Jesus. He reminds us to not be surprised when it causes no little disturbance. And to trust in Him in the meanwhile. Not be afraid of that. Not fear man. Not fear what people can do to us. After all, what can they do but kill us? Only God is the one who keeps our soul and He keeps us. If we're in His hand, no one can snatch us from His hand, Scripture says. It reminds us that our battle isn't against flesh and blood. You know, Demetrius was not the enemy. It reminds us that no political cause or pet cause that we might have is mighty for tearing down strongholds, but 
the gospel is mighty for tearing down strongholds. Through these verses and example, remind that Christians are most effective when they're engaging the culture persuasively, not through just opposition. Maybe ask yourselves, how do I engage the culture around me? Am I speaking and living persuasively? Paul was engaging their minds. They're seeking to gain appreciation for the gospel. These Christians were engaging people in their context. And over time, the world began to change. The kingdom of the earth was, was shaken, but God's kingdom was unshakable. I'm going to ask the band to come up if we could stand for a moment. Church, I pray that this would not just be a, a good old story for us. Pray that we might live like the people in Ephesus who had come to Christ were living. They were, they were turning away from their idols. They were, they were giving up everything. They were turning to the living God. They were hoping in Him. If we might live for Him and rejoice to see that God will shake the world as a result as we put our trust in His unshakable kingdom. Let's, let's stand and sing.